Hello, listeners. My name is Rhonda Morris, and I'm the Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Chevron. Chevron is proud to sponsor the Lead from the Heart podcast. I am here with my colleague, Greg Turk, who is the General Manager of our Culture and Change organization. Greg will share a short story about a leader whose simple and kind act had a long-lasting influence on his career and how he leads others. Thank you, Rhonda. Very early on in my professional career, I had a chance to work with a member of the senior leadership team on an important project. I was extremely nervous and eager to impress her, but I also felt intimidated by her authority and reputation. I was brand new to the workforce, new to the company and industry, and was still trying to understand the norms around getting things done. One day, this leader invited me to join her for lunch at a nearby cafe. I thought she wanted to discuss the project. Maybe I wasn't meeting expectations, or perhaps the project goals had shifted. But instead, as we sat down, she asked me about my background, my interests, and my goals. She listened attentively and shared some of her own experiences and insights. She was friendly, humble, and genuine. She treated me like an equal, not like a subordinate. She also gave me some valuable advice on how to succeed in the corporate world without losing myself or compromising my values. That lunch changed my perspective on leadership and inspired me to follow her example. Her simple act of taking the time to get to know me showed me that being a leader is not about being powerful or authoritative, but it is about being curious, respectful, empathetic, and supportive. She also showed me that being a leader is not about being perfect or flawless, but about being human and authentic. She taught me that being a leader is not about being the best, but about bringing out the best in others. That simple and kind act has had a huge influence on my career. Leadership comes in many flavors. I am grateful to have had this experience early on in my career to help me lead authentically and with curiosity and compassion. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Thrilled to say that our guest today is someone that I've long been interested in having on our show. Several years ago, when I was still in my first career in financial services, as a Christmas gift, one of my colleagues gave me his book, The Knowing Doing Gap. At the time, I never thought I'd one day be sitting down for a conversation with him, but I was very impressed by the book and have been following his work ever since. Bob Sutton is a longtime professor at Stanford University's Business School and is a prolific author. And I've always been amused that he had the courage to title one of his books, The No Asshole Rule. And that book has performed rather well, which sadly signifies a lot of us still believe we work for really toxic bosses. For the past seven years, he and his colleague Huggy Rao have been studying the ways in which companies unintentionally create maddening friction from mazes of red tape to clueless leaders who pile on needless complexity to hours spent in meetings to more wasted time spent reading poorly constructed and indirect communications, email especially. And they've just published the new bestseller, The Friction Project, How Smart Leaders Make the Right Things Easier and the Wrong Things Harder, in which they provide clear and proven solutions tactics, tools, and practices to help us avert these traps and move forward. 
With so many of us working very long hours and still often ending our days frustrated that we didn't accomplish more, Sutton's book not only provides informed guidance on how to reduce destructive friction, but interestingly also on how to purposely introduce friction as a means to making the wrong behaviors harder or even impossible for employees and customers to do. In reviewing the Friction Project Wharton's, Adam Grant said, quote, if every leader took the ideas in this book seriously, the world would be a less miserable, more productive place, end quote. And with that as background, let me give you a warm welcome to the podcast, Bob Sutton. Great to be here, Mark. I've been looking forward to this. We have lots of interactions together on Twitter, and I think I've told you several times that I've always wanted to have you on. And so now you've written a new book, and it's perfect timing. So welcome. Let's get right to it. Sure. I read your book. I really enjoyed your book. It's a topic that nobody else is discussing. But if anybody spent any time, particularly in corporations, they know how real this is. So you say in the introduction of your book called The Friction Project, that it's about forces that make it harder, slower, more complicated, or downright impossible to get things done in organizations. And you and your co-author, Huggy Rao, devoted several years to researching friction. So I actually was thinking about this this morning, and I thought, well, how did he adopt this as a topic? So start there, and then tell us why it's such a big problem. Oh, sure. So the way it started, it was kind of, you know how life is. Everything sort of coalesces together. First, Huggy and I, this is 10 years ago or so, wrote a book on scaling up excellence. There was a lot of organizations that we worked with or did cases on Facebook, now Meta, Alphabet, Salesforce, that just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And as they got bigger and bigger and bigger, people complained it was harder to get things done. So that was one cause. Mm-hmm. A second cause was in our own university, Stanford, it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger in the 40 years I've been there. We have more and more red tape. And then when we teach sessions, people were constantly, they get so emotional about how hard it was to get things done in their organization. And just, just to give you one quote, I remember there was this HP middle manager and he looks at us and he says, you know, my leaders expect me to show initiative. I don't know how I can do it when I'm swimming in a sea of shit. And so that was a sign that, uh, gee, maybe we should start investigating it. But as you know, when you start one of these adventures, it didn't turn out exactly as, as we expected when we started, but we learned a lot. What does that mean? Well, there were two parts that surprised us. The first part, and you're like, I think you're like the poster child for the optimistic guy. <laughs> I think of you because you're so optimistic. And the good news is we started out, oh, oh, you can't get anything done. Organizations suck. Well, actually... We kept finding all these leaders, all these organizations who, despite, I mean, friction's a pretty powerful force, especially bad friction, bureaucracy, meetings, you know, sort of pick what you want. We find these people who actually could make things better. So that was one reason. And then the other surprise, and I'm literally working on an article on this right now, is that there's all these things in life that should be harder or impossible. And so the book is not just about how to get rid of bad friction or what Koss, uh, Sunstein calls sludge. It's also, well, when do you make things harder, slower, more difficult? So those are the two main things I think we learned. On the, the book says seven years, but it's really closer to eight. I was just calculating it recently. So we've been doing this way too long. But the book's done, so we're happy about that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting. There's a lot going on here in the early part of this conversation. One thing that strikes me is that 
And Rick Rubin says this in his book, oh. The Creative Act, which is a magnificent book if you haven't read it. I hate to say it. I bought it, but I haven't read it. <laughs> You'll absolutely love it. And it's just absolutely brilliant. But one of the things that he says is that when you begin something creatively, uh-huh. i.e. your book or even the research eight years ago, that where you end is predictably and unpredictably very different than where you imagine you would have ended when you began the project. So I think, you know, that when you proceed that way, when you, when you consider it from, I don't know where this is going to take me, I think that's when serendipity introduces itself and you go, oh, like we actually might want to add some friction into the organization, right? Well, speaking of Rick Rubin, one time when, uh, and there's so much evidence for this, one time when good leaders, good teams slow down is when they do creative work. I've been studying creativity in various forms for at least 25 years. There's like the famous Teresa Mabalai at Harvard Business School, Mm -hmm. 45 years or something, studying creativity. And when, when I look at her stuff, it's really clear that the best creatives, like they like to get things done as fast as they can, but they're not focused on efficiency. They're focused on doing things right. And of course, the creative process is filled with failure. It's filled with sort of stretches of confusion. It's not a fundamentally efficient process. So we bring evidence to bear on that. And then, uh, you know, a couple, two creatives, one, my favorite creativity book of all time, talking about book is called Creativity Incorporated. Hmm. By Ed um, lovely guy. And Ed basically wrote us, we didn't think about creativity at Pixar. We just thought about iterating till it met our standards. And then we also quote the famous comedian, Jerry Seinfeld, and his perspective when Harvard Business Review interviewed him, when they asked him if McKinsey could make you more efficient. He just said they were nuts. And he said, the hard way is the right way. And so, yes, we might want to make creativity less inefficient, but it's something that you got to slow down. You've got to add friction on purpose. And there's lots of other things we can talk about. But Well, I mean, you're actually making some of the points that I wanted to make, which oh, is that, no, no, it's fantastic. First of all, I would not have had Ed Catmull on my podcast had you not mentioned him in a tweet. Oh. <laughs> so that's what inspired me to have him on. And he was magnificent. So I have to thank you for that. He's an amazing guy. On top of that, I think sometimes that, you know, people say, well, you know, I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to write myself a book, you know, probably I think I can knock it out in six <laughs> months or something. You know, I, th- I think that some people, not all people, but I think many people just underestimate how much work goes into writing a book that's like legitimate, that something's going to be substantial. And so when you mention eight years, I just kind of want to amplify that that's quite a commitment. We have the privilege, and I think privilege is the word of of uh, a university that doesn't give us too heavy a teaching load and thinks that we're supposed to sort of like spend a lot of time trying to do original work. So I'm blessed. I know that a lot of people don't have that privilege. So that's one thing that I, I never forget. But the fact is that having you know worked with doctoral students and other students for decades, that it's like, I would say you're going to go through the struggle. I, I have had a few co-authors who write so fast, it's, they're almost from another planet. <laughs> There's not a lot of people like that. And I would say to my PhD students, usually they're mere mortals like me. So a co-author, Jeff Pfeffer, who, who wrote so fast, it was absolutely ridiculous. I did two books with him, but boy, was he hard to keep up with. And it was impossible. But, <laughs> but most of us are pretty slow. 
Well, you talk about writing here. One of the more amusing things that you start your book off with is that all I could think about when I was reading this was like, is he going to lose his tenure for putting this story in this book? You said that Stanford's vice chancellor once sent out an email 1,300 words to 2,000 faculty members, and then included a 7,300-word attachment. Yes. And you, then adding insult to injury, called it wordy, repetitive, and confusing, amongst other things. So I'm bringing this up not for my own amusement here, just thinking this is Stanford University. But I think that's the point you're trying to make, is that we forget this everywhere, even in places where we should know better. Well, yeah, well, you know, this person was sort of like third or fourth in charge of the university and being the obnoxious faculty member, I almost immediately wrote somebody above her and complained about it. And by the way, I think it helped. <laughs> I complained so much to our senior leadership, they started writing shorter emails. I don't know whether correlation is causation, but uh, Good. but they were actually civil. I was civilized too. We were all civilized about it. So to me, the general point there, and this is one of the causes of at least destructive friction, especially that people in power suffer from, but all of us, have, we call it the cone of friction. So our argument is that all of us in the positions we have sort of have the choice to make things a little better or a little worse. Or in the case of if you're sending an email to 2,000 people and you do the math, uh, it's a lot more people than that. So that's one of the things that we think about is our cone of friction. And my favorite example, and we're actually working with them more, for all of your listeners in different countries, different states in the United States, there's always like tangling with the bureaucracy and how difficult it is. And so as a longtime Californian, I've always complained about how difficult it is to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles. And there's an example early in the book where I went to the Department of Motor Vehicles. My mother had passed away and I had to do all this sort of complicated title stuff. And I was waiting in line. I got there early. There was 50 people ahead of me at 730. And I just assumed I'd be there till 1030. I'd be irritated the whole time. And this kind of angel, this guy just came out with forms. He walked down the line asked each of us what we needed to do, gave people forms if they needed it, told some people they couldn't get their whatever they wanted done at the DMV, like getting a passport. And I was out of there in 25 minutes. It was a great experience. And subsequently, Huggy and I have been in conversation with the leaders of the California Department of Motor Vehicles. We're trying to do a case. They are systematically trying to reduce the burden that the Department of Motor Vehicles heaps on citizens. And just as one example, there was one transaction called Real ID that they say they have cut from 28 to 8 minutes when people visit. And I love saying this to executives. If the DMV can do it, you can do it. (laughs) Correct. Right? And also being a Californian, this is a journey that they seem to have been on. And actually, when I read this in your book, I thought, that matches my own experience. I remember going in and just like, you want to shoot yourself because you're at line three, oh, now you need to go to line 18 and then come back to four. And But somebody has taken this very seriously. And I think it goes back to this idea of, of pushing back on the dean at Stanford and saying, hey, we have to do better. I'm sure all the complaints and the frustrations that they saw, somebody said, let's see if we can do better here. So what's the takeaway, I guess, is the answer here. Like, what, what's the advice that you give managers to, what can they do in their own organizations? The takeaway for us for bad friction is to us, everybody who has any kind of leadership role from sort of the field staffer at the DMV, well, to the head of the DMV who we're talking to, we all have the ability to make things better or worse. And I think that's what our book is about. And so that's why we present a bunch of subtraction tools and think a lot about the way handoffs, things like that. 
to try to make organizations operate better. And, and I would sort of separate two different things. One is just sort of leadership behavior, which is that's sort of more interpersonal. And then there's structural stuff because we both know as, you know, sort of leadership organizational folks that, yes, the, the behavior of the leader is important. But the way the system's designed is often more important and mm-hmm. sort of think of themselves as system designers who are always prototyping the system to try to make the system better, not just to make speeches or, or to control their language or how many meetings they have and so forth. So we try to think about both interpersonal behavior and structural solutions. What about, you mentioned that we spend 28% of our time on email, which is astonishing, <laughs> right? I mean, when you think about 35 years ago, there was no email and now we're spending more than, you know, almost a third of our time on it. What was the advice that you gave the dean? And what's the advice that you would just give anyone listening to this to eliminate friction with the communications that they're sending? You know, first of all, just a comment, a friend of mine, and there's all sorts of other ways you can spend endless amounts of time, of course, on doing stuff electronically rather than doing work, although sometimes it is work. Slack is another sort of classic example. And just text messaging. I have a bunch of executives that I do a bunch of text messages with. But one of my friends, John Lilly, who, uh, among other things, was CEO of Mozilla as they grew from 12 to 500 people, great computer scientist. So I write him every year, and I wrote him as we were finishing the book. And I said, so is email still the killer app of the internet? He said, yes, in both ways. (laughs) (laughs) Email, but I wrote him, and you and I were just emailing too. But with things like electronic communications, I think there's two sort of messages that come out of the academic literature, and I think common sense too. The first one is, yes, doing everything you can to keep them short, to have as few people on your email, so not CCing everybody on earth, and to send them less frequently, oh, and also to make them more readable. And to me, this is just this idea that great friction fixers are editors-in-chief, and we've all had leaders who send inspiring notes, don't send them too often, and the other ones who just drive us crazy. The other thing, and this is a thing about rhythm, and it's important from a sort of friction reduction standpoint, there's some cool research on what they call bursty communication, and what this research shows, Anita Woolley at Carnegie Mellon University is one of the key researchers on this, is that the most effective teams, they either communicate really intensely or not at all. And I kind of like that because either you're kind of all in and you're all going and you're really focused or you're leaving people alone. And the worst leaders and teams, they kind of communicate at a kind of medium, sort of low level, and they sort of expect things to happen. So in terms of rhythms, the evidence looks like either you go all in or you don't say anything. So I also thought that was kind of cool too. How does that play out though? So like, just give me an illustration. Well, an illustration is an example for some of the projects I lead, you know, research projects. If I'm working with somebody, I try not to say, have a one half hour meeting a week about the article. We're, I'm doing this right now. The article we're going to write in six months. Why don't we just sort of have a really intense two or three days instead of having the half an hour meeting once a week where we can barely remember what we said last time and we've made no progress at all. Let's, let's just sort of set aside three intense days and crank the thing out and really talk a lot. I get it. 
I like that. But to me, that's the bursty communication insight is either you're really doing it or you're ignoring it. <laughs> well, as I'm listening to you, it doesn't fit perfectly under this burst of communication. But when you're running a business, you're getting emails from everybody. And right. I used to get really frustrated because it was like, where am I going with this? Like, where are you taking me? What is the outcome? What's the purpose of this? So I just made a simple fix. I said, just tell me right up front what this has to do with. Joe Smith just quit. I need $20,000 to buy this and then build it from there and then use bullets. And I found that people were like, it just became much more efficient for me. And you can still make them pleasant. They don't need to be curt or anything no, no, like no, that. No, 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 no. I mean, this also reminds me, speaking of sort of friction reduction in the role of culture and leadership, is that I've had a number of friends, fairly senior executives, who did corporate America their whole life and they went to Amazon and Amazon, it's a literal, it's a friend of mine, she's like an executive vice president. They sent her to a class and teach her how to write and how to run meetings. Because they have a philosophy at Amazon is that everybody writes memos before the meeting. Mm-hmm. And the meeting starts, no PowerPoint, the meeting starts with people uh, reading each other's memos. And then they can have a deeper sort of conversation. And so she, it was sort of amazing to her. And one of the more interesting things is some of my friends who also work at Microsoft, they who have worked at Amazon, they'll go to Microsoft and they'll have people write memos instead of using PowerPoint meetings because it entails deeper thinking. But to me, this idea about using people's time efficiently and knowing when to go deep versus sort of broad is pretty interesting. And I really agree with you on the headlining that I think that, that helps everybody sort of move along. What's the old line from journalism? Don't bury the lead. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I say that to people. I use the journalism example. Well, I think sometimes people just are intimidated or they're afraid, you know, and so it's like, yeah, I can take it. Just give it to me straight. But then you have to respond well to people, too, so that they trust that process. Yes. Changing gears here a little bit. You mentioned one CEO who offered every member of his executive team a $5,000 bonus for subtracting at least two routines, technologies, meetings. And of course, predictably, every one of the executives got the award. And so I I think I kind of know the answer here, but is offering financial incentives like this the best way of identifying friction? I do wonder. So just to sort of back up, well, that's a great question. As a psychologist, I could argue both sides of my mouth. But, um, <laughs> but, but to sort of back up, one of the things that we've done with more than 100 organizations I just did it online with two groups of 400 Salesforce executives. It was pretty entertaining. It's something called the subtraction game. The subtraction game, it's just a simple little tool to start conversation. And what we do is we have people often just turn to a neighbor and say, tell us about in your organization or your group, what's driving you crazy, what's slowing you down, what used to work but doesn't work anymore, and identify a, a top subtraction target or two and share them with the group. And maybe talk about getting rid of it. So we're playing this sort of light subtraction game. And the CEO of a large insurance company, who was a guy who'd been CEO, he'd founded it like decades ago. He stands up and just in the middle of the presentation where we're running the subtraction game. And he says, so as as you just said, so what we're going to do is we're going to keep track. And all of you, if you subtract two targets, I'll pay you $5,000 a piece. And I've never been involved in like this in anything in corporate America. We were involved in looking at the spreadsheets and tracking the executives and giving them a little coaching on what they subtracted. So I've never had an experience quite like that. 
but it did seem to work. I do worry to your point about financial rewards that if one of the main effects since this was uh, financial incentives, and it was actually kind of easy to bullshit the CEO, frankly, as if they were making things up or they were talking about things they actually already had gotten rid of. And then another concern I had to be blunt is that some of them seem to be laying off people who maybe they might not have laid off otherwise. Oh, so so I was a little seriously, I was a little bit concerned about this because he wasn't exactly a warm and fuzzy kind of CEO. But I guess I'm of two minds. One is yes, the subtraction mindset is something that every leader, every organization member ought to start thinking about. They should not just focus on adding more and more and more complexity. But it can be cruel to take things away from people without being thoughtful enough about it. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Well, the idea of subtraction has to have its own internal incentive, right? You know, if I can get one less meeting or one less process off my plate, that's going to make my life better. So in terms of the coaching that you're giving organizations like this, separate from laying people off in order to get a $5,000 bonus... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I kind of find like reprehensible that somebody would think to do right, that. It's reprehensible. But what are you learning? Like, what are you subtracting? What are the big hits that we can take from this? We've worked with a bunch of organizations. Sometimes we've done case studies. And then one of the more interesting relationships well, that I've had is that there's a woman named Rebecca Hines who she started out as a Stanford undergraduate actually working with Aggie and I, even on our book before on, on our scaling book, she was actually involved in doing some of the editing there. She was brilliant. She eventually got a PhD and she went into kind of corporate America. And now she's head of something called the Asana Work Innovation Lab. And with the lab, we did this sort of an intervention or might call it an experiment, I guess, where we worked with 60 different Asana employees and we had them rate each of the standing meetings on their calendar in terms of how important it was and in terms of how much work it was. And essentially, they, uh, and there's 60 of them, they identified something like 500 low-value, high-difficulty meetings. And they went about, and Rebecca in particular helped coach them about how to redesign the meetings. Sometimes it was pure subtraction, just eliminating the meeting. More often, it was making it shorter, making it less frequent, and inviting fewer people. And it looked like it saved about four hours per month per employee. So that would be an example and this is written up in Harvard Business Review. If your listeners don't want to buy the book, you can find it there for free. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the same guy who laid off the people for five grand is going to find a way to not pay for the book. Um, (laughs) Now, this whole idea of subtraction is, I think, and, you know, this episode comes out in the beginning of the new year, and I've always sort of believed, even though Katie Milkman will tell you that you can start something fresh any day of the year but just the beginning the symbolism of a new business year to look and say what is superfluous like what do we need this for and if you just took one meeting away or cut an hour awake away down to 30 minutes you're giving back people time and i think that's the whole purpose of your book right yeah well well, i think it's part of the purpose of the book because we talk about things that should be made more difficult too And in fact, that's one of our arguments is that one of the reasons that it's important to get engaged in subtraction is to clear the way for things in life that should be slow, should be difficult. I mean, just to go more emotional, there's some really interesting research. The lead researcher is a guy named Fred Bryant who studies savoring. And he's got this whole sort of stream of research that shows that people have better mental health, have stronger social bonds and stuff. They're really good at slowing down to sort of enjoy the moment. 
and to reflect on the good things they've done. And with all the stress in life, that's one reason that you might want to have people slow down. And my favorite example of an organization that has really gotten into the slowness thing seriously is that there's a big grocery store chain, the largest grocery store chain in the Netherlands, Holland, called Jumbo. And there's also a national movement to help with loneliness among the elderly. Mm. They experimented with a slow lane where everybody understood that when they got to the clerk, they'd spend three or four minutes or five minutes chatting with the clerk. So they tried in one store and, and they're scaling it out in 2024 to 200 stores to have slow lanes. To me, that's almost like the definition of top-down savoring, <laughs> reported savoring from the top. And a massive act of societal kindness. Yeah, yeah. It's such an it's inspiring story. So it's, it's intentional inefficiency. And to me, if you think about the stuff that surrounds it, that what enables a slow lane to work is the people want to go fast and go fast. In fact, they don't even have to use a human checker at Jumbo. You know, they have the scans, self-checkouts, and they're also making money doing things by having an efficient supply chain and all that sort of stuff that frees up the things that ought to be slow. So that's why we think that everything in organizations shouldn't be frictionless. The question is, where do you add it and where do you take it away? Well, before we get into that, I want to go back to email for a second, and I want to tap into the psychologist in you. So you say that over half of U.S. employees send or respond to emails outside of work hours, and 75% of them respond within an hour. So like, they're looking at their phones constantly, and if it's from their boss, they feel compelled to do it. So as a matter of reducing friction and stress, uh-huh. do you believe leaders should be sending emails and text after hours and noting that people feel this obligated to respond to their boss more than anyone? So I used to have this really hard point of view. And I learned some of this from my wife, who, well, first she was managing partner of a big law firm, and then she was CEO of the Girl Scouts of Northern California for 15 years. And she would do this thing where she'd work all weekend, but she would not send her emails until about nine o'clock Monday morning because she did not want to bug her staff during the weekend unless it was an emergency, of course. Because, you know, things happen where girls get lost to the campgrounds. She had like 11 campgrounds or something. Or a Girl Scout selling cookies gets run over by a car. If that happens on a weekend, you you get yeah, you, you bug people. Not pausing the emails. <laughs> so I used to think that that was sort of best practices, and I think it does send the message. But then I start working with these organizations Microsoft would be an example, Adobe too. They're in every time zone in the world. So then you have this problem of what do you do? Somebody's in India or Dubai and it's sort of the middle of the night for you. And so it kind of gets more complicated. And at least if you're in an organization where people are in different time zones and you know it's kind of unclear when working hours are, at least having the norm of everybody understands that they, unless it's an emergency, they don't have to respond right away. I think that good leaders just sort of set the tone by making clear that employees don't need to answer immediately. But and some of them do have rules too, that you can't send emails on nights and weekends. But as I say, in, in multinational corporations, that can be complicated. So now let's dig more into your book. One great source of friction for all of us is the amount of time we spend in meetings. And so what are some of the best ways you've learned that you can free up people to accomplish more essential work in their days? And this doesn't just mean what we talked about a moment ago, which is taking an hour-long meeting and saying it's 30 minutes. So how do you even do that without cutting value? Boy, well... 
we already talked about this idea, then call it the meeting reset technique that I've worked on with Rebecca Hines at Asana, which is that one approach is to just ask people, and even in some organizations that we work with Dropbox, they actually um, will remove all standing meetings from people's calendars for four to eight hours or so, and then have them carefully think about each one and put them back in. But that isn't the only kind of discipline, I think, that improves meetings. The other thing that I see, and this is especially organizations I've been part of and ones that I've worked with, there's a lot of organizations that one of the reasons that there's so many meetings and so little progress is made in meetings is there's not very good discipline about keeping track of what we accomplished, who's doing what, and what we need to do next. And so it's like a dog chasing the tail. It tends to be, as one senior executive said to me, I feel like I'm going to the same Monday morning meeting for 24 years. We, have, we talk about the same topic and never get anything done. So in the book, we talk about them. We call them Patty's parting principles. And I learned this from Patty McCord. Patty was a, mm-hmm. essentially head of HR of Netflix for the first 14 years. And she was talking about, and Patty's really funny. I don't know if you've ever had her on she's your been show. On. She's been on. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. She's brilliant. She's obnoxious. She swears. She's so much fun. I just love her. I I had her on my podcast. She was the star. So Patty said, I learned at the end of the meetings of the senior team at Netflix to say, okay, did we make a decision or not? And that's a really good question. I think of all the faculty meetings I've been at Stanford where I thought a decision was made, but other people didn't agree. And then she said, okay. And then her next thing was, okay, who is responsible for implementing it? So that's pretty good. And then it's, okay, are you ready to follow up on our next meeting and report? What's the schedule? And that's so basic. I think that's management one, not even management one-to-one. But the number of organizations that I have worked with, including allegedly famous Fortune 20 sort of companies, where the senior team doesn't do the fundamentals is amazing, let alone any of us in, in any of the teams that we have. So, so having the discipline to sort of end the meeting. And so the next meeting is actually progress rather than the same old sort of kabuki dance problem. Yeah, I really like that. And I've never worked with Patty, but I certainly could pick up her personality when I was talking to her. And, you know, and I thought, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, for that to work where you have somebody in the meeting who's then holding people accountable yeah. and saying, okay, Bill, you said you're going to get this by Tuesday. I'm just confirming. Uh, Joe, you're doing this. Mary, you know, you need a bulldog like her. Like you need somebody who's like no nonsense, who's basically saying, okay, this is what we've all agreed to do. When we get the next meeting, this is where we're starting. Tom, you're going to have to tell us where you are, Bill, you know, that kind of a thing. And if you don't have somebody doing that and everybody just feels the other person's responsible or not responsible, then you have 24 years of the same meeting. Mark, to unpack to what you're talking about, there's really a lot to me in what you just said. Because to me, first of all, there's a the notion of accountability. But accountability isn't always just completely top-down. We already chat a little about Ed Catmill. In the great organizations that I've been part of in great teams, essentially there's nowhere to hide. And we talk about the notion that I own the place and the place owns me. And I think at its peak, at least in the years when Ed Catmill was running it, that Pixar really had that set of norms that everybody held one another responsible and Ed didn't have to intervene very much. So that's one thing that comes to mind. And the second thing, and I think this is a really important point leading from the heart, and I think you know something about that, that I think that great leaders do. And there's this notion that we tend to sometimes categorize leaders is either they're sort of micromanagers who intervene or they're hands off. 
And there's some great research, you know, when to inject friction and when not to sort of top down. There's some great research by Lindy Greer. She's at the University of Michigan. She's done quantitative studies. She's done case studies of the founders of companies and the founding CEOs. And what her research shows is the best leaders, they know when to switch gears. They know when to sort of activate the hierarchy and say, here's the decision. And you just described it really well. Mary, you've got to do this. So, so, so to really act like they're the boss. And they also know when to flatten the hierarchy. They know when to say, okay, let's brainstorm, maybe pass around the talking stick. One of my heroes, David Kelly, the, uh, mm-hmm. the founder of IDEO and also the Stanford Design School that I'm a co-founder with him of, but he's really the guy who got it going, is David does this brilliant thing where he convenes meetings of a bunch of smart people and he introduces them and he walks out because he doesn't want to be like the stifling presence because he can be because, you know, he's got such a strong personality. And Ed Catmill did the same thing with Steve Jobs at Pixar. He asked him not to attend the sort of creativity meetings of the brain trust because he'd be too stifling of the conversation. So this idea about knowing to flex the hierarchy is a really important skill for me. How do you learn that? Because that's absolutely brilliant. And also what's also brilliant is this notion of the hippo leaving the room, you know, the highest paid person (laughs) knowing that their ideas are going to be deferred to because of their status. So they just walk out of the room and let everybody else go back to work. I think that's brilliant. So one of the places I first learned about that was in reading about the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1963. I was alive then, but I was eight years old or something. But there's this brilliant thing that President Kennedy did during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was they had the executive committee that was making the decision, and he was concerned that his presence would stifle debate. And what he did was he broke them into two different groups. So they essentially would develop ideas independently of one another or semi-independently and just sort of walked out of the room for an hour and a half and then had them meet together and present the recommendations they came up with. And to me, that's almost the model of how you sort of flatten the hierarchy and remove yourself from the room, but then you convene them all together. And then your president, Kenny, in that, in that case, ultimately the decision is yours, but you probably get deeper analysis when you have separate groups that you're not stifling in sort of the you know, the problem formulation and decision phase. So I don't know, David Kelly, does he have a big personality, but a less big ego? Like, Yeah, so David Kelly, I first got to know him in the 90s when one of my PhD students and I did an 18-month ethnography, sort of anthropological style study of IDEO, which was then almost completely in mechanical engineering shop and most of it was in Palo Alto. So we just spent time hanging around. And my, my co-author, his name was Andy Hargadon. He was a real product designer and becoming a PhD student. And uh, he would sort of translate to me what was going on. The other thing about David that I've always really admired is that he is such a great listener. All the times that I've gone to talk to him, I realized he just asks a bunch of questions. He doesn't talk about himself hardly at all. And since he listens so well, every conversation I've ever had with David, at the end of every conversation, he tends to pass along really interesting gossip because he hears so much great stuff. <laughs> I mean, he has amazing gossip. And, uh, and there was a point where he was talking about Steve Jobs being his best friend. So that was pretty entertaining gossip. But go on. No. <laughs> so, You're um, not going to leave us hanging now. You got to got to tell us the story. David Kelly would sometimes joke that Steve was an asshole. And he got nicer with age. We have a lot of evidence of that. But the thing that was most striking about Steve and touching, which is largely unknown, is my friend David Kelly had severe throat cancer. 
It was in and out of the Stanford Hospital constantly about six or eight months. And this was in 2007 when the new iPhone was being launched. It's not like Steve Jobs had nothing to do. And Jobs would go to the Stanford Hospital and would see David two or three times a week and really took care of him. And, and of course, Kelly would joke that he'd yell at the nurses for me because he's Steve Jobs. But he really was sort of loving and caring to his friends. I mean, he could be complicated. He could be tough. But he also had the side of him that was really very caring. You know, Ed Catmull sort of intimated some of that as well, but that's a beautiful story and not well known. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit more about constructive friction? Yes. Give me some more examples. And I want to get into coordination problems. So we have lots of examples, but one other ones that I would sort of add is in this year of being concerned about ethics, there's really quite excellent research that when people are in a hurry, they're less caring. And then when you put pressure on them, a sense to use the Facebook language to move fast and break things, they're more likely to cheat. And this is something that academics have produced in the lab. If you have people work on a project and you tell them that our mission statement is to move fast, to be in a hurry, to be first, to beat the competition, rather than to get things right, to slow down and consider, people are more likely to break laws, for example, in the lab. And this also happens in the field. So if you are in an organization where you're feeling pressure to go really, really fast, watch out. And the comparison that I like to use is two former Stanford students. One, your listeners will know, Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos. <laughs> Elizabeth, one of the things that she and Theranos did was that they never got FDA approval for their device that didn't work. And that was one reason that they weren't allowed to put it on U.S. Army helicopters. And that was a case where they were sort of rushing ahead and weren't being careful enough. And in contrast, and this is a company probably none of your listeners have heard of it, one of my favorite startups out of Stanford, the CEO is Greta Meyer. Her and her CEO, her name's Amanda, they are reinventing the tampon. They've got like a $5 million in funding. They're already selling them called Sequel. And they both slowed down and got FDA approval for their product. And there were some ways they could have gotten around it, but they decided that that was the right thing to do and the best thing to do for legitimacy. And by the way, Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of Stanford. There was that series, The Dropout. Both Amanda and Greta finished their degrees too. <laughs> so, oh, wow. So, so wow. it is possible. It was only the right way all the way through. They're, they're great people. But this idea about when people move more slowly, if you look at research on things like civility, that when people take time, just even a couple seconds to acknowledge people, to wave at them, to ask how they're doing, that there tends to be more civility in workplaces. And when you put people in a hurry, they say, I have no time to be nice. So you got to be really careful, both from uh, civility, you know, sort of avoiding the asshole problem that I've, I've written yeah. about before, mm-hmm. is that putting people in a hurry is a really reliable way to make them uncivilized and get them cheat. So slowing down and talking about the importance of being considered, that stuff actually works. And as a leader, that has to be modeled, to your point. Well, that's a great insight. And something else that I loved in your book was this idea, this to me is slowing down because, you know, when a new employee comes in, you kind of think, oh, you know, manager's going to train them and develop them, or it's not my responsibility. And so what you said was that, giving people mentors from the day that they begin. And you even said that you've seen this with law firms and engineers and prison guards, even in the military. So those struck me as being very diverse. But somebody in those environments said, 
we're going to eliminate a lot of friction if we bring people in and we have them mentored by people who've already mastered this place. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, we talk about that in the book, this notion that we're making onboarding low friction and then slowing down and having people, essentially people who are good mentors to me do three things, I guess. One is that they teach the person how the system works and how to develop their skills. The second thing they do is they help them navigate through a complex system. And that's one thing we haven't talked about is navigators. When you can't fix a complex system, it's sort of like finding the employees who knows the best way through the system. Those people are invaluable. So just at Stanford, we have got some folks for our students who know all the rules and the easiest way to get through the system. And they make it easy on the students because they're great tour guides. And we have people who make things worse. Yeah. <laughs> adding friction. <laughs> they, add, they add friction. And sometimes they enjoy adding friction. And then it's sort of advocating for the person. And on this point, and some of you might consider having on your show too, there's a new book coming out by a guy named Matt Bean. He's a professor at University of California at Santa Barbara. It's called The Skill Code. I just read it yesterday in Blurbit. And he makes the argument that if you look at many occupations, and he's talking about everything from welders to surgeons to lawyers, that the way that those occupations work and people become great is you have experts mentoring novices. And he's not talking about classroom training. He's not talking about videos. He's not talking about reading, all that stuff. It's sort of hands-on, in-person sort of training. And he's worried that people will use artificial intelligence as a replacement for that and will lose our great surgeons, our great welders are great lawyers. And so he's trying to come up with a solution where that kind of mentoring that we're talking about, where you have a real expert teaching a novice and guiding them along the way, where that keeps happening and we don't rely on artificial intelligence in such a way that it destroys that relationship. So that's sort of the basis of his book. And I think that's right. So you have to kind of slow down and add a little bit of labor costs to make sure that you maintain your excellence for your clients and yourself. I love that. And, you know, there's another dimension of this, which I've seen, which is that when somebody comes in new, the novice, and they have a mentor, and then the novice employee struggles for some reason, you know, they're not acclimating to the culture, or they're just not doing their job well. What I found is that the mentors feel a sense of responsibility, and then will go and double down on helping that person, you know, get back on track and feel like, okay, somebody's here to support me, which I think is just like fantastic. Yeah. Just, you know, speaking a little bit more personally, I was so blessed early in my career to have such great mentors. My goodness. I had my dissertation advisor, Robert Kahn, and a guy named Richard Hackman, who's both famous organizational theorists. And then when I got to Stanford, I had a department chair, his name is Warren Hausman, who just protected me. You know what I mean? And that's another great thing that mentors do. We've described this in some of our writings is, is they open up the shit umbrella and protect you from the shit falling mm-hmm. from you. Warren did a beautiful job of protecting me from the Stanford bureaucracy so I could just focus on learning how to do my job. So to me, people like that, they're just so important. They're so precious. You know, this is felt like a little bit of this conversation felt like the wild, wild west, but we actually talked about a lot of really impressive stuff. So I just want to make sure that you feel the same way. You know, if people want to have a completely linear version of this, they can read the stuff that we write about it or they can read the book. But it's more fun to have a more wide ranging conversation, I think. I agree with you. Hey, Bob, we're going to take a quick break. 
And I want to move into a tradition that we call the heartbeat round. Sure. So if you already know what it is, I think our audience does and needs no introduction. So <laughs> here's our first question. You ready to go? Yes, sir. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? Ooh, learn when to shut up. Great. Cultural value every organization should have. I think it's accountability. It's this notion that I own the place and the place owns me. And you don't point the finger of blame at others and take all the credit yourself. In great cultures I've seen, it's, it's this idea that we're all in it together. A lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life. Oh, to stay as far away as you can from uh, people who leave you feeling demeaned, de-energized, just feel like dirt. So it's sort of like a personal no-asshole rule to the extent you possibly can. Best book you've read in the last year? Ooh. Well, the first thing that comes to mind would be Amy Edmondson's book, The Right Kind of Wrong. And it's won like a bazillion awards and it deserves all of them. So that's the one that I would pick. Amy Edmondson, the mother of psychological safety. She came on and discussed it. And it was, you know, like a month later, Financial Times named it the best book of the year. So I'm taking some credit. You deserve some credit. She's remarkable. She is remarkable. One of my favorite people in the world. First app you check in the morning. Oh, the first app. Oh, I'm really boring. I look at the New York Times app. <laughs> That's okay. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Ooh, ooh, that's really a good one. I think that they should quit something that they've invested just an enormous amount of energy in. I really am a big believer in quitting and not quiet quitting, quitting. <laughs> what does that mean? I mean? This is like quick answer, but quitting, like what? Well, it's quitting something that no longer gives you joy. Okay. You're no longer your best at. Quit something you love that is no longer working for you. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. The quality that, ooh, I'm going to cheat and say two of them. One of them is narcissism. And maybe that's the wrong term because that implies a stable personality trait. But I think power poisoning is a better term. And there's all sorts of research. When people get in positions of power, they are prone to focus on more on their own needs, less on the needs of others, and act like the rules don't apply to them. This is from Dr. Keltner is the person who who's maybe the lead researcher here. And the great leaders I see find ways to overcome the power poisoning. So that's sort of the narcissism. And then the other thing, since so many of my friends have quit senior leadership positions in the last three years, and this is not always their fault. It's just pure burnout and years of one difficult decision and one problem after another, which has been so difficult for leaders the last five years in particular. So one is sort of something that good leaders, narcissism or power poisoning, they can battle. But I'm more at a loss to try to help my friends who jump from one emergency to another. World leader of any era you most admire. Business, government, spiritual, you name it. Oh, boy. Angela Merkel, I think is how you pronounce it, who was head of Germany. I really admired how she did her job. Boy, was she impressive. And in terms of being a constructive moderate, in terms of treating people with respect, in terms of having good values, I was really in with her. Your best synonym for the word heart. Ooh, I'm really into the academic literature on non-romantic love. You know, if I was six years old, I would have said Davy Crockett or Han Solo. So. There you go. People will respond to that <laughs> one. Like solo. Your thoughts on remote work in one sentence. Mm, 50% about right. That's Ed Catmull right there. Your idea of perfect happiness. 
that's really kind of sad, but I really am an introvert. I hate to say it, but writing and rewriting sentences gives me a sick amount of joy. And I love my wife. We've been together forever. And the basis of our relationship is we're really good about knowing when to ignore one another. <laughs> oh, that's great. And in another life, you would have been? Oh, I don't think I would have lived to be 15 years old. I think that I would be impoverished. I have really been lucky and really been privileged. I think that in many other eras and many other countries, I would be sort of at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder and I would have died young. Yikes. Well, I hate ending it there, but I will say that this was the most fun that I've had in doing this heartbeat round in a long time. So <laughs> you're great. You're a very joyful person and very insightful. And so thank you for going through this with me. Before you go, we've discussed the book to some extent in a lot of different ways, but I, I do want to give you the floor here and to say is... Is there anything linear or anything that we didn't talk about that you were like, hey, we really got to make a point of mentioning this? Oh, sure. So if I was going to sort of hit the headline for our book, The Friction Project, How Smart Leaders Make the Wrong Things Harder and the Right Things Easier, it's essentially that our view is that what great leaders are, are they're trustees of others' times. So they're always worrying whether they're wasting other people's time or whether they're actually making them struggle in even if they don't want to, they need to slow down and struggle. So that's sort of the headline. And then the book's about all different ways that you as a leader can intervene from changing your behavior to subtracting to fixing coordination problems. One thing we haven't talked about, my favorite topic, jargon monoxide. So literally cleaning up your language so people can understand what the heck you're talking about. And to us, that's what great leaders do. And that's what we studied for really eight years is how to be a more effective trustee of others' time. So to me, that's what the book's about. Well, congratulations on it. And it's a very, very good book. I really enjoyed Thank it. You. And it's a topic that we've never come close to covering. So I appreciate you for that. But thank you for joining us. On behalf of my audience, Bob, it's been wonderful. Oh, it's wonderful. It's just great to chat with you. And I'm such an admirer of your work. Thank you so very much. You made my day for that. Best to you. All right. Bye-bye. many of you know, we've launched this podcast for the explicit purpose of demonstrating to workplace managers all around the world that leading from the heart drives sustainably greater performance and to refute the unfounded fear that it was somehow soft leadership. Along the way, we've introduced you to many of the world's greatest leadership thinkers whose own compelling work serves as further validation for the thesis. The good news is that we're having an impact. After 121 episodes, our show now ranks in the top 1.5% of all podcasts worldwide and has an audience in 175 countries. But we're really hoping to see our influence grow much greater. In all honesty, there's a very big difference in being ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts compared to where we are today, and our audience needs to grow substantially for us to reach that higher rung. So please, Go out of your way to tell all of your friends and colleagues about us. We would be so very grateful. I want to congratulate our sponsor, Chevron, which the Pete Drucker Institute just ranked in the top 100 of the world's best managed companies. 
And as always, I want to thank all the people who helped me create this podcast, including my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz, Mr. Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, and Anna Boynton. Until next time, I close things out with my two constant reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.